I'm on the trail of the world's most trafficked mammal, the pangolin. It was a trade in illegal goods that is believed to have started all of this. Unlikely as it might seem, this strange-looking creature is a highly prized delicacy in Southeast Asia, fueling a multi-million dollar global smuggling network and bringing it to the point of extinction. Before coronavirus, many people hadn't even heard of pangolins, shy, scaly little animals, which for some years now have been the world's most trafficked mammals. Pangolins are protected by an international trade ban, but that hasn't stopped thousands of them being shipped from Africa to Asia every year. In fact, reports suggest that international criminal networks would used to deal mainly with elephant ivory have increasingly turned to pangolins. It was two Daily Maverick journalists, Tiara Walters and Don Pinnock, who broke the news to the world in February that American researchers had traced the coronavirus to pangolin meat, which is available for sale in Chinese wet markets. It's thought highly likely that coronavirus was transferred from a dead pangolin to someone who ate it. This is now old news, but the point is that illegal trade and black markets have played a critical role in the story of the COVID-19 outbreak and its spread from the outset. And the irony is that the lockdown conditions imposed all over the world have actually succeeded in halting certain types of illegal trade, but also given rise to new and expanded black markets. When formal economies shut down, black markets almost always emerge to fill the vacuum. And while some of them are relatively benign, others are anything but. In this episode of our podcast, we're taking a look at the COVID-19 underworld, how the global lockdown has both disrupted traditional black markets, but also birthed new kinds of criminals. We're taking a trip to the underbelly of the dark web, where the illegal products for sale now include the blood of people who have tested positive for coronavirus. And we're zooming in on one particular South African black market, the trade in abalone, to see what effects the lockdown has had on this type of criminal activity. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. What kind of person falls for a hack? It was our producer, Haji, who got interested in what's been happening in the shadier corners of the internet during the coronavirus lockdown. What kind of person tracks down a voice on the other end of a call? Are you crazy? You're tracking down a hacker? I've been listening to this really interesting podcast called mm. Mother Hacker. It's a fiction podcast, which is not something I generally do. Like, I never listen to fiction podcasts. But this one really got me interested because it's about a woman who is a mother. She works at a school. She's recently gone through a divorce. Her ex-husband is also in rehab, so she's paying for all of that. And she's in a bit of an economic struggle situation. Anyway, she gets fished over the phone. What is fishing? Okay, so it means someone managed to get enough information on her and get her credit card details to be able to access her bank account and basically empty it and steal her money. But she becomes so obsessed with this idea that she actually tracks this lady down and she falls in love with this idea of hacking and stealing people's money and realizes that it's a way for her to make loads of money, get out of debt and basically continue her life in a way that isn't an economic struggle. Here's the deal. I'll give you an audition. One hack. 
if you're successful. I'll give you your money back and the opportunity to earn much, much more. Okay, completely illegal, needless to say. Absolutely, 100% illegal. But, I mean, quite attractive. Not that I would ever do it, but, you know, quite interesting. But the most interesting thing about it for me was that when I started thinking about the discrepancy between economics, her normal behavior, and what she'd gotten into in terms of the illegal behavior, I started to wonder about what might be happening on the dark web. You know, if similar behaviors were being portrayed and if there were newer people accessing this, looking for opportunities to make more money because of the pandemic and because of the economic situation. For the benefit of those of us who find the normal internet unsettling enough without searching out further horrors, the dark web is the part of the internet that you can't reach through normal web browsers and normal search engines. It's set up to allow complete anonymity online, which makes it the perfect breeding ground for criminal activities. So how do you get onto the dark web? You have to use a special browser called Tor, T-O-R, it stands for the Onion Router. I already had the Onion Router like ages ago because I had big ambitions of being a journalist on the dark web and uncovering these amazing stories that no one else had access to. Or being a fisher and stealing money. Could do, but didn't. But obviously that didn't work out. And then when I tried again, now I had to update the browser and that is the only way to get into the dark web. And another interesting thing is none of the websites are named after what they actually are. So I'll give you an example. If you go to Facebook on the normal internet, it's facebook.com. If you go to Google, it's google.com. But on the dark web, to make things untraceable and to keep things more anonymous, there's a whole bunch of codes and stuff that make up URLs and, and they can be anything between 15 to 50 characters long. A starting point for a beginner is to go to a place called the Hidden Wiki, which shares these URLs with you and redirects you to all these different places, depending on what you're looking for. On the dark web, do they have the same stuff that we have on the so-called sanitized web? Do they have Google, for instance? The go-to Google version of the dark web is a service called DuckDuckGo, and there are other ones. But if you, for example, search DuckDuckGo, like I, I did, you know, a general search because I thought I'm going to just type in something and it's going to throw out all this interesting information that I'll never find anywhere else. So I used DuckDuckGo, for example, and I just typed in coronavirus or COVID-19. And there were a lot of regular stuff that came up that would come up on the internet. Like so it also stories. directs you to the normal way. Exactly. There were stories from the BBC, for example, or stories from Al Jazeera or other news mm. outlets that also came up on there. But then there were also stories from dark web specific news websites, which specifically deal with cybersecurity, warning people about hackers, warning people about systems, new systems that are being used. And I think there is this misconception that the dark web is just about dark criminal activity. But there is also a lot of activism that goes on there. And clearly people trying to prevent criminal activity. If you say the news sites contain warnings about hacking and that, it's not just people encouraging each other to hack. It's also people perhaps going there for tips. 100%. And that was one of the things that was quite refreshing, but also quite boring to see, <laughs> was this the pure humanity of people. Like, there are bunches of people on these forums who are obviously using the dark web to buy drugs or to use other services or to learn how to hack ex-girlfriends, you know, Facebooks to make their lives a living hell. But then there are other situations when they're commenting on things and being completely rational human beings and going, we're using our moral compass here and what you're trying to do is completely wrong. So what can you do on the dark web? I mean, the stereotype is that it is awash with guns for sale, that you can order hits 
that you can buy drugs. Is that the case? You can do all of those things. There is a website with a service provider who will 3D print you any gun that you want, for example. There's another website where a man specializes in, and I think I just have to give a trigger warning here, but there's a man who specializes in raping people. So gracious, you can you can basically place, commission a rape. Exactly, you can commission a rape, and obviously this is a network of people. So he's not just talking about commissioning a rape in the area where he's situated, which one hardly ever knows. But there's a network of people he works with, which work in different areas. There are also obviously repositories filled with drug sales, where you can get anything from normal drugs like cocaine to prescription drugs. Obviously, OxyContin is very, very popular. There's another side to the dark web, the beautiful dark web. And it's an odd kind of thing because all these marketplaces work with ratings the same way Amazon would. Oh, wow. So people leave reviews on how trustworthy the source is. So, you know, this beautiful dark web is the one that goes out there and says, don't use this guy, use that service instead, my stuff didn't come, etc., etc. Is everyone paying in Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin the currency du jour on the dark web? Yeah, Bitcoin is the preferable currency, but there are also requests for paying only in dollars. And there seems to be some kind of weird cyber hacking system where Western Union is used to do this kind of thing. There are also things that we always see in mafia movies and things like Breaking Bad called The Drop, where people can, you know, organize other people within their networks to drop off the product. And then there's this kind of swap arrangement. So that's how the dark web operates during normal circumstances. But what Haji was particularly interested in is what was happening down there during the current global lockdown. So she started poking around the dark web marketplaces. Because I was a total newbie, I finally got into the Empire Marketplace because I read up a lot and this was the most popular one. And the first thing I started to notice was that a lot of the advertisements had sort of put up disclaimers to say, due to the pandemic or due to COVID-19, we're unable to deliver, we're unable to get your products to you, etc., etc. But more than that, there was an abuse of the situation. There are lockdowns in so many areas, so many borders are closed, and so many people are obviously desperate to get drugs, whether they're prescription or other kinds of drugs. A lot of salespeople, if I can even call them that, were taking advantage of this and putting their products on sale and, I think, you know, over-promising. This mirrors what's happening in the surface world, where the halt placed on most international freight has made it much more difficult for drug traffickers to move around products, particularly like methamphetamine and heroin. The UN actually warned in May that a reported shortage of heroin could drive drug users to more harmful domestically produced substances, while there's reportedly been a doubling of prices for pharmaceutical products. But what Haji found most interesting on the dark web at the moment were the people who seemed to be entering it for the first time out of financial desperation. What really, really interested me was and I'll come back to the mother hacker thing that I spoke about in the beginning, was the regular people who had never accessed the dark web before, who had never even thought of it as something that even existed, who were now entering forums and having discussions and asking for information and tips on how to hack, on how to fish, on how to card copy and do all kinds of things because, you know, they needed to pay their rent, they needed to put food on the table and they were just desperate to find new ways to make money. And because they didn't know any of this, you know, the consequence of that is that hackers have now started to sell tutorials and video lessons 
and stuff like that to teach them how to actually do it so that they can supplement their income. So the dark web has seen this influx of people who are going onto forums and openly saying, hey, I'm new to this, but basically I need some tips on criminal hacking in order to make a living during lockdown. 100%. One of Haji's most eye-opening finds was a marketplace thread written by someone who said she was a nurse at a medical institution and was looking for help. I'm a newbie. I'm a beginner. I have no idea how this works. But look, this is what I've done. I've gone into the lab and I've stolen blood plasma of cured COVID-19 patients. I have a whole range of safety products, which I've also stolen. And a friend of mine said to me that the dark web is a place to sell this and I'm just looking to make money. Where can I get rid of these products? This is one of those situations where the majority of comments underneath her thread were like, please don't do this. This is not okay. But then there were also very scientific comments with people giving her advice and saying, look, you can only sell the blood if it's held at a certain temperature, if it's stored a certain way. This is how to go about it. So like really anal criminals. Exactly. Bent on health and safety protocols. Right. Haji also found a dark web user who said that he was no stranger to violent crime but that the lockdown was leading him to consider exploring new possibilities for increased revenue from it. Hello, everyone. I was thinking about kidnapping some people with my partner in crime. I would like to do two things. I would like to sell some of them alive, but I also want to sell some people's organs. Now, I was thinking about keeping them alive as they are, before I got enough offers for their organs. I mean, I wouldn't hurt them until asked to do so for two kidneys and maybe some other things like lungs and hearts, etc. But then I realized, all right, I've got a partner, the perfect place to kidnap people and hide them from everything, but I need one more thing. I need a place to sell them and their organs. Of course, I could just wait for people to order organs and then I would murder someone and take only what I need. This way, I could make some money that I would save from, say, renting a garage or something where I could keep people and the organs. So is there anyone who knows where I can sell the victims and their parts? And this man is literally talking about human beings as though they cars. I mean, how do we know that this is somebody who is being serious and not just a 14-year-old boy who's living out his weird-ass fantasies? I mean, that is a good question. There is no way of knowing that. But we do know from history, for instance, that the dark web has legitimately given rise to murders, to crimes. There's also lots of data and evidence that shows that, for example, you know, taking advantage of children and child porn and that kind of thing has increased massively percentage-wise because so many kids are at home now and so many kids are on the internet and so many pedophiles are now taking advantage of that. You know, in another surprising twist, a lot of responses to the weird kidney man's post was that he should drive off a cliff or get medication. And then, of course, there was another concerned user who said, look, dude, I don't think you realize what it actually takes to kill a person. It's very difficult. You think you can do it. But when it gets down to murdering someone, it's actually really, really hard. At which point the guy openly said, I'm a murderer. I've murdered people before. That's not a problem for me. Also, surely the surgical element Imagine harvesting organs in fresh condition is not a job for a layman. No, no, there was lots of advice on that as well. Someone suggested that he go to medical school or at least read... (laughs) This is a (laughs) long-term, very complex plan. (laughs) Or at least read a few books on, you know, how to remove organs, how to keep them fresh in ice boxes, and the exact time they need to be transported. Okay. and, And that kind of thing. So it's this weird, you know, contradictory place where, like, 
humanities up against moralities, up against cyber criminals, up against people wanting to sell kidneys. Yeah. And much like the real world, I imagine. Much like the real world. But again, my most fascinating and interesting takeaway is that normal people are now so desperate to supplement their incomes and pay their mortgages and pay their rents that they are being dragged into this thing and taken advantage of by being sold tutorials and information and PDFs of textbooks of how to do this stuff so that they can actually make money. And it's illegal, but COVID-19 seems to be creating criminals out of people who aren't really criminals. COVID-19 may be creating criminals out of people who aren't usually criminals, but what is it doing to people who do normally make a living from criminal enterprises? While we were thinking about this question, we came across an article published in May in Hakai magazine by South African journalist Kimon de Grief. Kimon has probably written more than any local journalist about one issue in particular, South Africa's illegal abalone trade. And in this article, he reported on the effects of lockdown on abalone poaching. We called him up because we wanted to find out more. So abalone's a big marine snail. Most South Africans know it as the archetypal coastal town ashtray. It's got a pearly inner shell. So in Afrikaans, we call it perlemun, which is derived from mother of pearl in Dutch. It used to be super abundant in South Africa and no longer is. And that's because it's... Uh, delicacy in Chinese cuisine and has been for many thousands of years used in a way maybe comparable to how people in the West use champagne or people who drink in the West use champagne to conclude a business deal or celebrate an important birthday. Buying abalone is a way to signify your respect for somebody and also a way to signify that you're worthy and deserving of respect. South Africa still has a legal abalone quota. It just happens to be about 20 or 30 times lower than the total illegal abalone catch. Kimon says the problem is that back in the mid-20th century, nobody really understood how finite a resource abalone really was. It was so abundant back then. Like it was, you could go and pick it out. It was in ankle deep water. You'd have two to three perlamons stacked on top of each other, kind of as far as the eye could see between Betty's Bay and, and say, Hansby, or even further up the Overberg coast. And this wasn't something that we as South Africans really assigned much value to. You would put it into a seafood stew or cook it on the beach or maybe at a braai. Historically, it was actually regarded a bit of a poverty food, like something that you, you go and take out when you need to, which is just it's kind of mind-blowing to think of how differently the exact same shellfish was regarded halfway around the world. South Africa also has legal abalone farming, though Kimon says wild abalone is considered much more of a delicacy. But the demand for abalone is now so great that trying to legally export farmed abalone is a perilous business. There's been a rising trend of essentially cash-in-transit heists, but for abalone vans. So they, generally speaking, export farmed abalone live, whereas uh, poached abalone is normally exported dried. And these trucks have to drive from the abalone farms to the, to the airport and nobody really knows how many there have been because it's not something that the industry really likes to talk about very much. But there have been multiple um, full-on assault rifle shootouts with these guys with live abalone in the back and then cash-in-transit heist gangs, I suppose. So nowadays, most of the abalone that 
gets flown out legally from the farms has to be escorted by the very same companies that protect bank cash from cash and transit heists, like Fidentia and whatever those companies are. Kimon says diving for abalone is not a job for the faint-hearted. It involves diving usually at night in freezing waters after either swimming kilometers out to sea or being dropped off by a boat you simply hope will return to collect you. And despite the difficulties, the divers are one of the lowest cogs in the abalone black market. They hand over the abalone to drivers who shuttle the stuff between different levels of buyers. By this stage of the economy, it's all controlled by pretty serious organized criminal figures. The price per kilogram for dried abalone was was recently over 2,000 rand a kilogram, and somebody will be sitting on multiple tons. You know, it's a commodity with many millions of rands per shipment. And keeping control of that amount of illegally obtained capital, essentially, is not something that you can really do unless you've got the muscle to back it up. So then we're talking about people with the ability to defend themselves against anyone else who might want to hit them. Historically, that's been street gangs across the Western Cape, a very complicated sort of underworld structure. And their ultimate buyers are typically people involved in in Chinese mafia groups. The top-level transactions generally take place between high-ranking Western Cape gang figures and high-ranking Chinese mafia figures. And sometimes what changes hands between the two groups is not cash, but a different kind of commodity. Over the 1990s, a new pattern set in where instead of cash, you would swap your abalone for something that you needed. And something that Chinese underworld figures had, that South African underworld figures needed, were um, ingredients to manufacture drugs. Originally, this was, I believe, largely methaquilone used to make um, mandrax for buttons. Towards the 2000s, a new commodity surged on the Western Cape drug market, and that was TUC or, or methamphetamine or crystal meth. Some transactions, nobody knows how much and whether it happened all the time, if it was just sometimes, but certainly there were documented cases, there have been documented cases of shipments of abalone being exchanged for ephedrine or pseudoephedrine, which are the chemicals that you need to manufacture tuck. And the the timing of that, anybody who's followed life in, in Cape Town over the last two decades knows that, that the, the tuck crisis came on extremely suddenly in the early 2000s, was devastating in its cost. And it's pretty insane to me to think of how much of that was directly funded by abalone poaching. So COVID-19 hits, and it rapidly becomes clear that the virus is in some way linked to the Chinese wet markets I spoke about at the beginning, where you can buy pangolin meat and other products, including abalone. And Chinese authorities take action accordingly. When China banned the importation of wildlife products after the outbreak in Wuhan at a wet market, the abalone black market totally collapsed. People stopped being able to send it. Nobody wanted to buy it on the far side. And that was the first time that the Avalon black market had collapsed like forever. The onset of the pandemic did something that the South African government has failed to do in more than 25 years, despite investing untold millions of rands in, in multiple anti-poaching initiatives. Kimon says that some syndicates are still buying abalone and drying it in the knowledge that they will probably be able to resume sending it out at some point in future. But the most immediate effects we've seen are in a collapse in the price of abalone. The per kilogram price basically plummeted to about half of its former level. So pre-lockdown, abalone was selling for 600 to 650 a kilo. And that's at the bottom of the chain. That's from the diver who's giving it to his middleman and getting that cash back. Within a few weeks, that was down to 300 to 350 rand a kilogram. 
many buyers were sitting with Pelamun that they couldn't get rid of. So there were stories of people with a ton that they had no buyer for. I know of one case of a ton of Pelamun that was kind of shopped around and eventually just discarded because, you know, the supply chain had kind of frozen up. This may, on the surface, seem like one of the positive nature strikes back stories we've seen coming out of lockdown. But Kimon warns it almost certainly won't work out that way. For one thing, he points out that if divers are getting paid half their normal cut, they have the incentive to stay in the water twice as long and poach twice as much abalone. And there's another likely outcome. I would not be surprised if there would be a massive surge in poaching when conditions alleviate. Because one thing keeping a bit of a lid on poaching at the moment is is that there is this hard lockdown. So there's curfews. You can't be at the beach. It's kind of more difficult to blend in. So some of those factors, I think, are are having a deterrent effect. Not a huge one. There's still boats going out every night to Robben Island. The police have made multiple arrests. An abalone cookhouse was busted in Cape Town two weeks ago. But there's a little bit of a lid on things. And I would be surprised if we don't see a big push in poaching down the line where people are more desperate. Kimon says there's a stereotype of abalone poachers as being young guys spending their money on fast cars and drugs, and that while this element does exist, the money made from the abalone trade also supports much more basic needs in impoverished seaside communities in the Western Cape, paying school fees, buying food, renovating shacks. In fact, abalone money essentially keeps many people alive, and that's why Kimon worries about what will happen when, like currently, the abalone trade stops bringing in this money. Even during lockdown, that's maybe giving us a glimpse of what might happen in 15 or 20 years when when Perlamun is no longer there, because then you're going to have entire communities, entire systems of the economy that have come to depend on on a revenue stream that's dried up. and, And what replaces that? People working in that trade have their business relationships, their networks, their work experience is increasingly within a criminal economy. And um, it's pretty horrifying to me and to other people studying the trade to consider what people might turn to as an alternative. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on the Daily Mavericks website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.